You're listening to the Park Ave Pulpit, a podcast of our latest sermons at Park Avenue Baptist Church, a progressive community in Atlanta, Georgia, where all are welcomed and celebrated. If you're in the area, join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. You can also visit or donate online at parkavbaptist.com.
Samuel, the prophet slash judge slash kingmaker, anoints Saul. But clearly, as the story plays out, we find out that wasn't God's best answer. Despite Saul's size and his success in battle, he could never shake his own paranoia that power was slipping through his fingers. The fear of losing power eroded the control he exerted, especially when a new charismatic young star was on the rise. Kingmaker, take two. Enter little red-skinned David State. Right, here he is, chasing the sheep around. He's filthy because he's been outside all day. He even stinks a little bit. Sometimes a few best friends just allow him to bring the like every day. I live without time. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's David. The ultimate underdog, taunted by a vicious, wealthy, militant regime. The Philistines, Goliath. And for once, the revolution wins. Score one for the oppressed. The giant falls at the cunning of a young shepherd with a slingshot. He took five stones, you know. But he only needed one. Sure. A victory for the ages. David defeated Goliath with a smooth stone and a slingshot. You think it was enough for David to really defeat Goliath, but no, he doesn't stop there. He takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. Sweet, stinky shepherd boy turns right over Goliath's later. And violence begets violence, begets violence, begets violence, begets more violence. We didn't flannelgraph that in children's church. We did. I thought it was stupid. We looked it out. And so this idea continues of the warrior king. Because if your king doesn't wield physical power and violence, what good is he? I'm so glad that we're, we progressed past those days of violence and military might and imperialistic conquest, courageous so called strength, and silly tests to see whose loops are bigger. Yeah, ancient texts aren't always so ancient. Not really, at least the things. But the text, scripture, gives us a clue here. At the time when kings go to war, David sends Joab. Because it's always so much easier to send somebody else to war on your behalf, somebody else's son, somebody else's dog, somebody else's mama, somebody else's brother, while you sit at home in a big comfy white house. I guess you feel less guilty when the further away the blood is from your conscience. But whatever the reason, Joab sends to ravaging and besieging. He's like, blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> Meanwhile, David. Already out of place, not on the field of battle, sees a woman on a rooftop bathing. She's not doing this salaciously. It is an act of piety and devotion, cleansing herself ritually during her cycle. And David is interested, to say the least. So he sends for her, and when he captures her, claims her as property, David tells his messengers to bring her to the palace so he can live out his wildest fantasies with the woman bathing on the roof. And he does. And her, she doesn't give any consent. Nope. I can only imagine imagine David talking off the record to a celebrity reporter from Access Jerusalem, perhaps, about how he makes moves on women, how he can't control himself, how he grabs them and kisses them because, you know, he's a king. They like it when he does that. They let him do whatever he wants, even grab them by the oops, family Sunday, I digress. <laughs> but Pop to his back, she was since word that she's pregnant, and the baby ain't your eyes. No Arikovich paternity test necessary. This one is on the shepherd king. The man after God's own heart. That's the problem with lofty titles when they keep on you by adoring subjects and or citizens. They'll have you believing that all you're after, and that's all you're after, and all those greedy, ambitious, visceral urges that you use to condemn and those who oppress you have come on the roots in your own heart. So you do what needs to be done. Repentance. Nope. Cover it up. Use your campaign money as hush money. Oops, wrong story. I mean, I have some lawyers to pay them off. Still the wrong story. Story. 
I mean, bring the husband home from war, send over some flowers, champagne, and a D'Angelo mixtape, all complimentary to the Which isn't a bad plan, unless, unless the husband is a dutiful soldier, bound by duty, and he refuses to go home and lay with his wife. Exactly right. So then what? Well, there's only one option left. The truth! Hot! Wrong answer! Kill him dead! Game of Thrones style. Send him to the front lines and make sure that he doesn't ever return home. I have to think somewhere Saul is looking around saying, remember me? Not looking so bad now, am I? And I honestly don't believe God is somewhere saying, I tried to tell y'all you don't need a king. Want? Yes. Need? No. David is a murderer, not a manslaughterer, not a murderer in the second degree, a conspiracy to commit murder with malice aforethought. And even worse, he's the king now. See, the powerless shepherd boy who had that slingshot now wields the full military and political might of Jerusalem at the apex of their power. And he uses it to cover up his own transgressions. And he is all set to get away with it. The power dynamics are almost comical. The one incapable of obstruction and collusion has cooked up the final solution. The plan works. Uriah is dead and nobody needs to know. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves because today's lectionary text doesn't start with David. It starts with Bathsheba. Oops, I mean the wife of Uriah who apparently doesn't deserve to be named in this text. And she isn't laughing. There's nothing comical here for her. She's just received the news that her husband is dead, and she's mourning, lamenting, bawling her eyes out. You see, as much as this story is about power, it's also a story about what it means to be powerless, what it means to live every day of your life with Masani's boot crushing your neck, suffocating you sometimes, slowly, sometimes quickly, killing you and your family, trying to roll that worldly way, criminalizing your body, and trying to make you think it's for your own good. Bathsheba isn't just a blip on David's goody two-shoe image, and she's not some pawn in the story to highlight what happens when you look out your window at another human being bathing on a rooftop. Bathsheba highlights for us the under, underside of the empire, the underside of patriarchal militarism. Bathsheba very clearly shows us that even the man after God's own heart is a lord by the power of the kingship. And when kings and presidents think they can't be checked, lives are at stake. Women's lives are at stake. Black lives are at stake. Immigrant lives are at stake. Trans lives are at stake. Working class lives are at stake. Our lives are at stake. I cannot imagine what Bathsheba must have felt. Her life was at stake. Her husband's life had already been taken by the man who had assaulted her. And then there was the matter of that life growing inside her. How would she relate to the child? Would it be a beacon of hope for her or a grim reminder of the children she and Uriah dreamed of having? Would she nurture that child at her breast and think this baby should have had Uriah's nose. Add to the powerless list of characters in the story, the child who survives birth and then dies. I wonder how Bathsheba felt after all of that. We never really find out. Women's lives are at stake. I can't help but notice that Bathsheba only gets two lines in this entire story. I'm pregnant. 
Everything else is a dialogue between men. Children's lives are at stake. We don't know if the child cried as they breathed their first breath outside of Bathsheba's womb, but we do know they never got to speak their first words. Children's lives are at stake. Lives are at stake. And where is God in all of this? God, don't you have anything to say? The reality is we don't know Bathsheba's experience. I mean, we, the two of us, do not know and cannot know. By virtue of our experience as men and the power that affords. Well, some of us more than others. Yeah, you're right. We can't speak to that. But we can and do say her name, Bathsheba, Bathsheba, Bathsheba. When the text can't call her name, we can and will call her name. That's all right, guys. We don't give ourselves as men uh, permission to sit on the sidelines so they wouldn't speak for themselves. We don't get a pass. We don't get a pass. We, too, have to speak up and speak out with every woman who has had the uh, hashtag, the words, me, too. We have to speak up and speak out with everyone who's still afraid and or ashamed to hashtag those words. Bathsheba in this story is the ultimate on the other hand. Yeah. And we have to speak her name. We have to honor her for Bathsheba. As with so many women in the Bible, they're silenced. I can't help but notice in the text that when women are silent, not just here, but in other places as well, God is also silent. He doesn't proceed to pray that God will bless him. 
He lets him know how foul he is. And instead of blessing him and sanctifying him, he doesn't bless his mess and hopes for a kickback. So God speaks through him. You can't be a prophet and not tell God's truth, God's whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Otherwise, you're just a yes man and a puppet for the empire. David is, according to scripture, undone when Nathan hits him with the truth. It's a truth he can only accept in allegory because David thinks he's still the good guy. But the mirror of metaphor yields the humbling reality. I wonder what truths I ignore when I'm convinced I am the good guy. When all my presumed righteousness is exposed as hypocritical pride. When my morality is bankrupt and I'm confronted with the receipts. When the prophet says, you are the man and there is no denying it. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. The camera pulls back. David is in a heap on the floor. And renew a right spirit within me. The songs are like a soundtrack for the Bible. Do not cast me away from your presence. They show up in the middle, but occasionally you get a note that tells you what scene to attach a particular song to. Insert Psalm 51 right here. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Camera zooms in. David rises from the floor, looks in the mirror. He barely recognizes the violent man he's become. Restored. Restore to me the joy of salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Nathan's parable exposes David's hypocrisy. It exposes the hypocrisy of many when we believe in justice for a poor farmer and a parable, but not for farmers impacted by trade wars and tariffs. It reveals the hypocrisy of the many when we believe that Sheba is just a tool in the story of David. And we allow her story to become an allegory and not a real-life experience. A living, breathing woman marginalized by a man in power. It shows our hypocrisy when we are saddened by the slaughter of a baby lamb, but unbothered by young black folks who risk being slaughtered every time a white person calls the police on them for doing virtually anything while being black. We're left with deeper questions. The ones that undermine our own perceived goodness and heroism. What happens when you defeat the oppressor? How do you keep from becoming him? Yes. David killed Goliath, but then he picked up Goliath's sword. Mm -hmm. That's good. He cut off Goliath's head with it. Victory wasn't enough. Vengeance was his mm -hmm. to take. And that sword would go on to take many more heads. There's only a two-letter jump from oppressed to oppressor. Which makes me wonder, when power is given, how do I respond? How and when is that power wielded and in whose favor? I like that question, Trey. What happens when you defeat the oppressor? How do you keep from administering the same oppression you are on the receiving end of? How do you cultivate the consciousness to be aware of the manifold ways that oppression tempts us, lures us in to do its building? David didn't just kill folks with swords in the war out of the field. He killed a woman's soul. He killed her husband and her baby. Honestly, our goal today isn't to villainize David. Ultimately, this story reveals that David played the part of the oppressed and the oppressor, the poor and the rich, the hero and the villain, and we have to resist the urge to completely vilify him. 
but we also have to resist the urge to make him the ultimate hero. Yes. Or the only subject in this story. Because he's not either of those either. Now when David sits in that seat of power, he assumes the role. He plays the emperor. He plays the king. And it takes art, a parable, to help him realize the truth about himself. I wonder what truths I ignore. Can you think of the last time you've looked in the mirror and not recognized yourself? The last time you looked around and wondered how in the world did I get here? The last time a poem, a song, a novel, or a play revealed a truth to you that you weren't quite ready for. What do you do when you're confronted with the truth? Be like David. Pray. Lay in a heap on the floor if you have to. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Repent. Turn around. Meditate. Renew the right spirit within me. Look inside and deconstruct your own power, your own privilege, and then turn your heart to God. We've got to do this every once in a while, y'all. And then we're coming to the table, which helps us do that. The song we read earlier, Psalm 51, gives us a blueprint for this very action. Psalm 51 is spiritual formation for the deconstruction of our own power. And in my spirit, 2 Samuel gives us a blueprint of what happens when we don't do that. It shows us what happens when we play the role of president, the role of king. When we act like David and we get so caught up in the narrative that we are good, just, and righteous, that we fail to see the ways that the empire has crept into our own hearts. We all have within us the capacity for beauty and ugliness. Good and evil, creation and violence, even those of us who others consider people after God's own heart. Even presidents who show no evidence of the love of Christ. Who knows when the shift happens? Where is the line? How can you tell when you move from oppressed to oppressor, hero to villain, creator to destroyer of worlds? I've got no earthly idea, but perhaps the shift begins the very moment you forget that God isn't inevitably on your side. The moment you forget to pause, check yourself, and look in the mirror. And sometimes we can't see the reflection because we are too close to it. It takes an allegory, the story of somebody else held up by a friend that helped us see our own lust for pleasure, our lust for power, our lust for control. This, this is what the Bible does. It's best when read together in community. Because just when you think you're sure what God is saying in that passage, you always read. God shows up through your neighbor and says, well, I'll be over. Yes, and. What I'm hearing is that Sheba's voice. What I am feeling. What I'm struggling with here is. What I'm learning is. That my heart doesn't always look like God's. I'm learning that God's heart is kind. And I need a clean heart. Cast me not away from your presence, O oh God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And restore unto me the joy of salvation. And renew a right spirit within me. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and subscribe. As we like to say on Sunday mornings, now go 
into a world that is too often unjust, knowing that the God who created you loves you and empowers you to live boldly, love inclusively, and serve creatively. Until next time.